Hey, it's Jeff. I got busy in the last weeks and reached back into the archives to find one of my favorite uh, pre-pandemic conversations. As you'll hear, Chris Grosso is one of the most genuine, no bullshit nicks writing in the spiritual field. I love talking to him. Just a very, very special, very authentic, very self-revealed sharer of experience. And he somehow has a way, unlike many people writing in the field, of giving everybody permission to feel comfortable acknowledging and owning who they are and the things that, that they struggle with on the quest for something we might call wholeness. So listen close. But first, just a little bit of uh, Trevor Hall to whet your appetite. <laughs> did I just say that? I did. Yes, <laughs> I did. A little Trevor Hall to whet your appetite. feel for him. Chris Grosso is not a spiritual teacher. He's incredibly flawed, just like the rest of us, and isn't afraid to say so. Instead, Chris chooses to get raw and vulnerable about said flaws and his many insecurities, and then some. He is, however, extremely passionate about sharing the tools and techniques that have quite literally saved his life in the hope that they may help others too. Chris has managed to write three books, including Indie Spiritualist, which was published by Beyond Words, Everything Mind, which was published by Sounds True, and Dead Set on Living, which was published by Simon & Schuster. Yes, we're just as baffled by this as you are. He also writes for Revolve. I'm not that baffled by it. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a self-loathing. And I don't know what to do with it. We'll get into that, actually. <laughs> You know, maybe this whole hour will work on getting your bio to be self-respecting. Yeah, sure. I actually just changed that like two months ago because I had the professional one. I'm like, I don't want that. It sounds like everyone else's. Let me keep it real. And Yeah, absolutely. But, he allegedly also writes for Revolver Magazine. That's true. Is a youth mental health group facilitator with Newport Academy and has spoken at a bunch of fancy schmancy festivals and conferences, as well as even more events that were significantly less than fancy schmancy. That said, Chris's greatest passion in life is his work with people who are in the process of healing or struggling with mental health issues of all kinds. He speaks and leads groups in detoxes, yoga studios, rehabs, youth centers, hospitals, conferences, and festivals worldwide. He's a member of the advisory board for Drugs Over Dinner, hosts the Indie Spiritualist podcast, which I've been on, on Ram Dass's esteemed Be Here Now network, and is a member of the Evolutionary Leaders. His work has been endorsed by a diverse mix of celebrated and fancy schmancy individuals, <laughs> including Jeff Bridges, Ram Dass, Tony Hawk, Bam, Margera, Sharon Salzberg, Alex Gray, Richard Rohr, Tara Brock, Ken Wilbur, Jack Kornfield, Andrew Harvey, also known as Big Lion, Lama Surya Das, Robert Thurman, Treach from Naughty by Nature, and more. If you're still listening, uh, Chris promises to give you a hug in person if your paths ever cross. You can learn more about his work at www.theindiespiritualist.com or not. Whatever. Just take good care of yourself. Great, Chris. You know, Jeff, I just want to say I'm glad you mentioned you're on my podcast because yeah. I love you to the point where you are one of only two people who have been a repeat guest in the four years, three or four years I've been hosting it. So, And, and who may be the other person who has been on twice? Uh might have been a uh, Matthew Fox. That's who it oh, was. Oh, yeah. He's a cool, yeah. cool guy. Love Matthew Fox. Special, yeah. special man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you reconnected with me recently because you had read my book, Grounded Spirituality. Showed here. The most important, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking, spiritual book I've not only read this year, but in quite some time. I say that wholeheartedly. Great. Thank you. We'll talk about, about yeah. why you feel that way, about yeah. the lens and perspective in the book. 
And so I don't know, maybe if, if you're comfortable, just give people a sense of, you know, what brought you to this writing path? You know, what is the journey that source springs all the wisdom that you're bringing to the world? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, to nutshell it, because I'm 41 now. So yeah, led a relatively normal childhood, born in Maine, 1978, moved to Connecticut two years later. Grew up in Milford, Connecticut. When I was in sixth grade, moved to a very rural town called East Haddam. During that time, though, prior to moving, one thing I, I noticed in retrospect is I've always been a very diverse kind of person. So I was into soccer and hockey, but also skateboarding. And this was well before it was popular and accepted. And not now it's in the X Games, not X Games, uh, Olympics. So anyways, move to East Haddam. And that's kind of where a big transition happened for me slowly. I was less interested in sports and started really falling in love, even though I always loved music, but falling in love with the alternative grunge explosion as that was happening with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. And then I met a friend a little after that, the punk rock hardcore scene. And it was like all in from there. So I was like 13 or 14 playing in bands. So while my friends at school are going to school dances on the weekend, I'm playing in these bands that weren't great, but they weren't awful. But, you know, around New England, which is a big deal when you're a teenager. At least it was for me. And slowly but surely, I was actually sober up to that point. I wasn't even like experimenting. And then, I don't know, it was maybe around 16 or so. I got bored with the sober thing. And like a lot of teenagers experimented and drank and I remember drinking and that made me feel like, wow, I feel good. Prior to this, I'd been experiencing depression. I was self-cutting, anxiety. And then from there, marijuana and quickly into hallucinogenics and by the age of 19, full-blown addict. I mean, complete alcoholic. That's my first and that's my love is alcohol, but then whatever else is available. And from 19 to 24, downward spiral, functioning alcoholic, holding a job, playing in bands, recording, touring, paying my bills. But it was a cycle of, you know, make money to drink, wake up, drink to shave off, you know, the shakes and take a break at lunch and go drink. And then I, 24, went into my first detox and I took it very seriously because it was the first time in many years I had been sober from at all, period. Was there nine days, went into a two-month or 28-day inpatient uh, program, then a two-month rehab program, sober house. So, and then I got out on my own, sober for like 14 months, went to Rome to visit a friend and took the saying, went in Rome, a literal, too literally, and it was my birthday. And I'm like, oh, it's been 14 months. I can drink. I'm fine. And sure enough, like back, back at it. And uh, that became a cycle for like, 10 years, give or take, where I'd get sober for a year, two years, three years, like five years, and then I'd experience a relapse. And in between all of this, there are emergency rooms, there are suicide attempts, there are jail cells, psychiatric hospital visits, non-visit stays, psych wards. I mean, you name it. Like One of the last ones I talk about in Dead Set and Living, I was to the point where they had to intubate me because I wasn't breathing on my own. Like, And they said, had I been there even five minutes later, even if I survived, I would have been completely brain dead because there was no oxygen going. So they, they Narcaned me. It was just alcohol, but they had no idea. Like I was completely out. So they gave me a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, so that's kind of like an overview of the hardships. And uh, the one thing I should mention is also in between during those lengths of sobriety, I did get into school for uh, drug and alcohol counseling, and I met a my both advisor and professor for many of my classes who ran the program. She was like a second mom to me, and she's the one who introduced me to spirituality. I grew up hating religion, didn't know there was a difference between religion and spirituality. So I had a shirt, I remember, that said, Jesus hates me, uh, so fuck him on it. Like, I hated it religion like i remember in my senior year of college or high school we went to a college fair and people were handing out bibles and i took it and ripped it up in front of them and threw it on the ground and i was just angry really angry and the shift began to happen i'm 41 now around the age of 32 i ended up relapsing again went to new jersey lost everything at that point 
I remember when I was in detox in Connecticut before going to New Jersey, I missed my brother's wedding where I was supposed to be his best man. I lost my job I'd had for like five or six years working with kids that I absolutely adored. And I did one-on-one youth mentoring with boys and young adults. And uh, my car was repossessed. So went to New Jersey a few months, had to move back in with my parents at 32, filed for unemployment, which I'd never had to do. But I had like this surrender, you know, like, all right, what you tell me and you as in whatever is greater than me, what am I going to do? And the other thing I apologize when I went back, I was going to mention is that also during those times of sobriety, aside from my professor introducing me to spirituality and learning the difference between the two, like I had a library, a wonderful library, Russell Library in Middletown, if anyone is from Connecticut watching this it became my second home. And I just devoured everything I could from all of the great wisdom traditions, like, you know, the ancient texts, the more recent teachers, and a a lot of it resonated. Some of it didn't. And it just changed the trajectory of my life. And I went, well, we'll talk about the spiritual bypassing. Yeah, let's get to that in a second. I just want to have one question for you. You Earlier, when you were beginning your story that you grew up kind of relatively normal life in Maine. So looking back now at 41, you know, we often um, move from the assumption that if somebody ends up in addictive patterns, it has something to do with distracting from or being ruled by early traumatic experience. Absolutely. I don't believe that's always true. I believe human beings are much more complicated than that. But do you feel as though all of the experiences that you've had, all the struggles you've had, are somewhat sourced in something about your childhood that wasn't exactly healthy? Or does this feel like it's coming from some completely different place? I think it's a little bit of both. I do believe there is a lot of trauma that is in relation to addiction. Then again, everyone experiences trauma and not everyone becomes addicted. Right. So pardon me, I think there are genetic predispositions for certain people I haven't done a great deal of studying, but epigenetics is very fascinating to me where, like an example uh, someone gave me once is, let's say you have, you're born and you have the capacity to grow to be like six foot two. If you're not getting the right nutrients and vitamins and, you know, whatever, you might only end up being like five, eight. So I believe that, you know, in relation to addiction, that that could be there. Even scientists and, and neuroscientists, no one really knows to this day. So just so I understand, you mean that if for whatever reason you didn't get the nourishment or the nurturance to actualize certain potentialities, right. it may lead you in the direction of being more uncomfortable in your own skin Absolutely. as a result looking for ways to distract from reality or something. Yes, very much. And so the two other things I would add to that is what I've learned, because I still see a therapist weekly. And more over the last year, so I've gotten involved in EMDR therapy and ART therapy, which I found very beneficial for me, at least, is one, Gabor Mate helped me to understand in a conversation I had, he's a world-renowned addiction expert, trauma expert, is that we often overlook what he calls lowercase T traumas and capital T traumas. So, you know, 100%. Yeah. So the big ones are the obvious, the molestations, the terrorist attacks, you know, the big ones, the little ones are the ones like hearing your parents argue, not even abusive, but as a child, that's traumatic. Things like minor bullying, not like beat up, but like picked on just a little bit, a little T trauma. And he said those can be way more powerful than the big ones because they're unrecognized often. They're not processed. They're like a snowball that builds. And then the other side of that, I'm reading a wonderful book by a woman named Janice Webb, My therapist recommended it, but it's about emotional neglect and as a child. And what I appreciate is that my parents, I know they did the best they could. They had me very young. My father grew up without a father figure. He grew up in foster care and they did the best they could. They were good parents. And so what I appreciate about what Jonas says is just because we experience emotional neglect as children which can have heavy, heavy impacts later on in our lives for some people, doesn't mean you had bad parents. It's just that there are certain situations where you might have felt invalidated and you didn't even know because you were a kid. Say you get in trouble at school and like the teacher sends a note home, third grade, and the parent says like, 
you know, you shouldn't have done that. You, you know, do what your teacher tells you like next time, but listen, not a scolding, just whatever. But what they could have done is like, okay, they can say that, but also, so how does this make you feel? You know? So it's like, instead of feeling like I'm a bad kid, you know, so it's subtle things, but the more they happen, it's just been a really wonderful read and helping. I understand. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's so much of what we experience is ancestral generational contextual. So right. that might have been the best form of parenting at the time. Right. The best that they could possibly have done that maybe anybody could have done. Right. The second question is, as a consequence of that level of parenting, what am I left with and how does it impact on the way I move through the world? Right. Right. It's a separate question. It's interesting. You talk about sort of the big T traumas and the small T traumas. You know, my therapist used to ask me to sort of name a trauma and I, I could really deal with trauma. I mean, my whole childhood was a trauma. So I, I don't really, but they were mostly not all, but mostly small T traumas, which if not to trivialize the effect of big T traumas, but I think sometimes people can experience those, but if 99% of their life is pretty fluid and smooth and kind and safe and generous, they can still carry forward the belief that that was an exception, but not the rule. But you're experiencing one small T trauma, discomfort, feeling of neglect, whatever it is over and over again in your life, it does start to become the way you perceive reality. And if that's the way you perceive reality, it makes sense. You'd want to get the hell out of here with any kind of addictive or distractive patterns, you know? So maybe take us into, you know, when you entered into spirituality, my sense from your work, and I've endorsed some of your work, is that you move more in the direction of a detachment framework, more in the direction of Buddhism. And is that true? And if so, how did that serve you in terms of where you were at at that time? Sure. So like most people, and I think we've talked about this, I definitely had the spiritual materialism phase where early on it's like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. It's almost like a new girlfriend, you know, like, or boyfriend, like, wow, I love this. It's, you know, it's helping me. It's helping me understand the world in a different way. And, and so I started talking the talk and wearing the malas and burning the incense and getting the ohm shirts. And there is nothing wrong with any of that to each their own. It doesn't, I don't want to sound judgmental. Whatever works for you, cool. Like as long as you're not harming someone else. But so I went through that phase and over time, I definitely like the more I I went deeper into meditation and starting getting a little more in touch with myself, I started recognizing like and visiting various sanghas and just different spiritual, you know, settings and centers. I saw different patterns and there were plenty of dogmas held within each and rules and regulations. And you really have to like do this or that. And that never resonated with me at all. Like I've been very counterculture since like i mentioned i was a, a You're right so that's why i appreciate um a lot of like andrew harvey's work for example who i know you you've worked with he talks about the pathless path and that's not to say that there are not teachers that can help us and illuminate our the path ahead of us because i certainly still even have those to this day but what i recognize is my journey is is one where it's my journey. You know, Ram Das says the spiritual journey is a highly individualized path. What works for one, this isn't verbatim, but like, it's not going to work for another. So it did lead me more towards Eastern philosophy, but I don't consider myself anything. I often get confused as a Buddhist, but no, by, I'm not Buddhist. Um, if anything, I appreciate Vedanta teachings, but also even there, as you writ, have written and grounded your recent book, it has a tendency at times to take you completely out of the body and negate the human experience. So, so yes. So it's like I call it the Advaita movement, the Avoida movement. Yes. And I loved that. It's, it's right. So for me, it's not to say there's not benefit there. I still do find that it's a matter of finding the balance between the two, like Nagarjuna, the Buddhist philosopher talked about the two truths, which I, you, you basically sum up in your book, which is, the truth of the ultimate, which is the unmanifest science might say it's, you know, that quantum potential that's formless. And then the truth of the relative, which is everything that takes form based on that ultimate or unmanifest. And he says two truths, not one is more true than the other. Both are equally true. And I find that even though that's taught in a lot of Eastern philosophy and mystic Christianity to a certain extent, 
people go really far into the transcendent, like this body is like hindrance and, you know, yeah, it's a vehicle. But one of the sayings I love from you that I have quoted a million times, and now I'll say it wrong, but you know, something to the effect of, yes, it's true. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, but it's just as true that we are human beings having a human experience. It's the same thing. I mean, you know, this idea that there are two paths, say transcendent and imminent, I'm not sure is true. I, we just may not have found the language yet to understand why they're all one path. Yes, absolutely. So grounded spirituality, you read the book, you were excited about the book. If you had read this book 10 years earlier, how would you have responded to the book? And if it was different, why is it different now for you? What's happened within you that may have shifted your perspective in a way that's more grounded? Wonderful question. It's hard to say because it's obviously conjecture. Had I read it 10 years ago, it may have saved me some time (laughs) sifting through a lot of the bullshit that I did. But then again, I'm kind of grateful because, you know, I really studied a lot of these wisdom traditions and learned quite a bit. So I can have a conversation with people from varying traditions and come from a place of understanding what they're saying, yet also explain where I'm coming from. And I find a lot of the time they're really stuck in where they are. I try to be very open and fluid and I don't have this like set of strong beliefs except for things like be good to humans, you know, the basic core, like help other people, help yourself, take care of yourself. But what I even noticed with like my first book, Indie Spiritualist, that came out just like five or six years ago, I go back and I thumb through that and I cringe at certain points, you know, like even in that time, I still think it's a good book. I, when I wrote it, I was thinking of my 19 year old self, similar to your question, what might've helped the trajectory of my life around 19 when I became an alcoholic. And so I wrote that book with that in mind. But since that book and the two subsequent ones after that and speaking at a lot of these major events, which I know you've done the same and meeting a lot of these A-list spiritual teachers and seeing the behind the scenes, what really goes on. The real deal. The real honest deal. And this is not to say all of them, but and I won't name any names, but some certain people are just like, there's their stage presence and then there's their backstage presence. And it is a night and day difference. And I realized, like, I don't want to be that person. Like, I want to be Chris talking to Jeff. I want to be Chris speaking at the conference I'm going to be at next week. I want to be Chris with my fiance. Like, yes, I act a little different in certain situations and settings. That's we have to. But so over the course of these three books, I would just say, like, I've learned to give significantly less fucks. Like, I am happy overall. Happy might not be the right word. Content, I think is more apropos. And where I'm at, I have my practice. I know I am a good person. I help other people. And I just take it day by day, you know, and... uh, I mean, I don't, you know, the way I think of you, Chris, is that, you know, you couldn't be pretentious if you tried. (laughs) (laughs) I think it has been beaten out of me, to be honest. I mean, hammered. I mean, it'd be funny to see you try, you know. (laughs) I can really be pretentious if I tried. And yeah, I know I others in the field, Phil Shepard, Sean Korn, you know, a number of people who I who couldn't if they tried. You know, yeah. the way I think of the industry, because it is an industry, and I think people really need to understand that when they're approaching all of this, that this is an industry. Yes. People make abundance. an awful lot of money and they survive economically because of whatever it is that they're saying. And the way I distinguish it, having been around it for about a decade and having experienced many disappointments, many imitators, many people stealing my work, all kinds of stories. Sure. It goes on forever. Is that, you know, and it's a soul celebrity movement. I mean, this is, yes. they replaced the Eastern gurus in the West and we're buying into their stories. And that fundamental split between spirituality and humanists, which is so fundamental to the patriarchal traditions. So you can claim to be an evolved being and yet act out in all kinds of ways and just call that the personality or the self, but that's not really you. Well, of course, we know it is really you. But my experience is the way I think of it in simple terms is some people come to this work from what I call sacred purpose. They have a, a deep, passionate calling to write, to express, to connect to humanity. And there are a number that come to it from a more unhealthily egoic or financial place. And the material that comes through those different people is very different. The latter is much more imitative. You often are not really sure precisely what the offering is. 
And with people who yeah. aren't moved by sacred purpose, there is an individuation intrinsic to the offering. It doesn't Absolutely. mean we're saying something new that no one's ever else has ever said. How would that even be possible? Right. But we're at least saying it through our own and emanating from our own source ring and not from something fundamentally imitative or industry driven. And I think that the, that's the group that will help ultimately help us and leave a lineage that's actually forward moving for humanity. And most of the rest of it just kind of fades out. I've begun noticing, I don't know if you have as well, a shift in, it seems like people are starting to get over the whole new cage, as you call it, and I love movement. Like, it's still thriving, don't get me wrong, but I feel like, yeah, yeah, but I feel like a lot of people are like, all right, we've heard this before. A lot of authors are kind of writing the same book, just like rehashed, and I don't know. And it's not working. No, and it doesn't work. I mean, now we need things. The species needs things that work. Right. Exactly. You know, it gives you a little breather, a little moment of detachment, and which is fine. You need those sometimes. Yeah. But ultimately, it doesn't lead to sustainable transformation and make you more comfortable in your own skin. And that's why with my third book, I intentionally didn't write it just as myself. Like my first two books were about part autobiographical because. I feel like using myself as like the test subject, what better way to approach it and incorporating these practices that have helped, ones that haven't, the pitfalls that I've returned to, how I found my way out. Like I'm very transparent about my, as it says in my bio, like all of my, I don't like the word failures, but you know, the ways in which I have fallen. Challenges. Yes, exactly. And so the third book I felt compelled to write, but I didn't feel like I had enough to say for a book. So that's why each chapter was a narrative conversation with various people. And since then, I just started writing again. It it had been about a year and I hadn't written anything because I I don't force myself to write unless I feel moved to. And I'm a musician. It's the same way if I don't feel like playing my guitar or working on a song for a band, I'm not going to do it. I used to. And I found out the hard way that it comes out very forced, very inauthentic. I remember I spoke at my old high school to a writing class after I did a full school assembly, which that in and of itself was funny because like they must have thrown a party the day my my grade graduated because it was a small, small school. But me and my skateboard punk friends, they hated us. And (laughs) 20 years later, I had not been back to that school. I used to get kicked out and the cops called on me because I would skateboard there. They invited me back to speak and it was a... It was. It was actually a healing thing for me because yeah. the, the woman at the front desk it was the same woman. And she actually pulled me aside and said, I wanted to apologize because I know the way that myself and a lot of the staff here that treated you and your friends wasn't fair. And we didn't understand then things that we do now. Yeah, that, yeah it meant a lot. And it was a very healing thing. But then I went into the writing class after that the talk and and I said what I just told you, like, I don't write every day. And the look on the teacher's face was like, she was mortified. Unless you're in school and you have assignments, like, then you have to do oh, it. Good qualifier. Everyone has, a, you know, a different process, but. Yeah, um, so, absolutely. So I wanted to read um, just a little piece from uh, Grounded. There's some other things I want to talk about as well. And just Love it. see where it lands with you. Yeah. Um, this is from the heart of the matter chapter and the dialogues that I have with the guy, Michael, which is most of the book. Okay, quote, bottom line is that you cannot heal and resolve your emotional material with your mind. Knowing our issues is not the same as healing our issues. Your emotional material does not evaporate because you watch it. I have known many who could name it and watch their patterns and issues as if they were scientists researching their own consciousness, but nothing fundamentally changed because they refused to come back down into their bodies and move their feelings through to transformation. It's safe up there, above the fray, witnessing the heartache without actually engaging it. Yes, you may be able to get so skilled at a witnessing consciousness that you can overpower your triggers, but that's not presence. Real presence comes through the open heart. The key to the transformation of challenging patterns and wounds is to heal them from the inside out, not to analyze them, not to watch them like an astronomer staring at a faraway planet through a telescope, but to jump right into the heart of them, encouraging their expression and release, stitching them into new possibilities with the thread of love. You want to live a holy life, heal your heart. 
That's the best meditation of all, close quote. So, you know, many of the patriot, what I call the patriarchal spiritual traditions, really obsess over the mind. And really, the way they deal with the mind, they blame the mind for mostly everything because they don't want to deal with all that unresolved, messy material that men don't want to deal with. They want to become masters of the mind and masterful and all this vertical, transcendent monkey business. And they want to call it the monkey mind instead of what I call the monkey heart because and then they go into the mind, but really they witness within the mind. So they kind of go into a part of the mind to witness and tame the other part of the mind to become meditation addicts and talk with real equanimity and calmness and seeming superiority and stillness. And you can clearly see my view of that. Um, yes. And of course, I tried all of that and it was, you know, okay a little bit, but I was too enlivened. My body was too vital. I had too much energy coursing through my feelings and my heart and my. So I just didn't work for me. I felt like I was dying. I was killing the self in the name of enlightenment. Self-avoidance masquerading as enlightenment. But you, you've spent, I suspect, more time exploring some of those mind-centered wisdom tradition. So where does that quote land with you? And, and is there any way in which you don't fully agree with that quote? No, I will tell you, I not only fully agree with it, but I think that is so important. I wish like, everyone could hear that that is on a spiritual path. So I remember that specifically because as I was reading that part, it reminded me of another quote from a punk icon, Henry Rollins, who sang for Black Flag. And is, if you know anything about punk, like he's just one of the biggest icons. And I love this quote. He says, knowledge without mileage is bullshit. So it's kind of like saying right. in his own way. Nice. And so, yes, like... A big part of the reason I relapsed, I experienced several relapses through my life was because I was not willing to go inward. I was practicing meditation. I was focusing more on that. I want to transcend this stuff. It was an avoidance for me. It became a a new addiction because spirituality and practice absolutely can be an addiction for people. Just another way of avoiding stuff, like you said, going in the mind and you might not have the same consequences as an alcoholic like I did, like nearly dying, but it still like can lead you astray. Well, it can lead you away from an unresolved web of pain that deals into disease and sickness because you convinced yourself it's not real, but it's as real as real gets, right? Yes. And you are absolutely correct. And so I've had to make a very diligent and conscious effort over the, I've been doing this for 20 years and it's only been about the last five where I've really I'm, I, yes, I'm a overthinker. I'm an in the head kind of person. And I often like from the neck down, I feel feelings very deeply. But when it comes to like processing and working with my own, same deal. I try to figure it out here and not live it and feel it and allow it to come up here. And so for me, I think I mentioned earlier, EMDR and ART therapy has been so helpful for me. You know, you talk a lot about, um, I forgot the gentleman's name, but started teaching you like real body uh, experiences. And, Alexander Lowen. Yeah. Right. Yes. And it's been different techniques, but similarly helping me to come into my body and really allow myself to feel the feelings, sit with that discomfort. It's not fun. But when you do that, instead of disowning these you know, things that have been repressed, I'm reowning, I'm reintegrating them into my being. And so all this stuff that's down on that unconscious or shadow, you know, as Jung would call it, is coming up and I'm allowing it to come up. And yeah, it's not fun. It's not pretty. But that's why like the line of work or write the style writing we do where we talk about this isn't always as popular as that New York Times bestseller stuff because they do the kind of Band-Aid stuff, you know, like, you know, dip your toe in the water. This will help you a little bit. But it doesn't go into the ugly, like, let's roll up our sleeves. It's going to get ugly, messy, like... I mean, it's it's Tolle's book, The Power of Now, what I call The Power of Self-Avoidance. It's the same, you know, witnessing your pain body, call it a pain body, talk about your pain like it's a car part. I mean, the whole thing is not... I mean, we understand why on the preliminary level, as a first stage of awakening, this kind of stuff appeals to people because they do get some perspective and to get to learn how to detach. But ultimately, there's no recipe to bring that material or that more expansive consciousness back down into the body itself. And I mean, when you talk about 
engaging in these practices for years, being more mind-centered in your approach, and yet the addictive pattern's not going anywhere, it kind of makes sense to me because <laughs> there's not enough real transformation for you to bring into your interface in the world, and it mm-hmm. makes sense those patterns are still lodged within you. And what happens within the brain itself, not to get all sciencey, is that you have these traumatic things. Some people say the issues are in the tissues, regardless of whatever you believe. And I, I do believe that. They're stored, they're held, we have them. It, we get to a point where if we're not doing this work, so I'll use myself, I'll use I statements. If I'm not doing the work, I, and especially being in the line of work in which you and I are, where we take on a lot of heavy stuff from other people, I work with youth three times a month in a residential, and this is 13 to 20 year old young males, females, you know, with suicidal attempts, like real attempts, cutting addictions. I take that with me. So if I'm not working through that and, and processing that sort of thing, it's just staying there. It's not going anywhere. And that keeps me like stuck. And so when it comes to addiction, at some point I reach like a tipping point and in my brain, it just, it like a flip, a switch flips and I go from my, you know, neocortex right back to my limbic reptilian, not limbic, uh, my reptilian brain, which is the root, like the fight or flight auto response. And what happens at that point is that's like the survival brain and it completely takes over control of the consciousness. And in an odd way, like a therapist helped me understand that when I would return to things like alcohol or unhealthy coping skills, as counterintuitive as this sounds, that was an actual way of me compassionately working with my pain because it was what was rooted. Like it was, you know, I had all the neuro pathways there. That was my fail safe. What changed is once I started doing that body work and really going within and really feeling it and working with it, yeah. that's, and, and that's not to say that I don't experience still at times depression or anxiety or, you know, I'm a human being like, I still feel these, you know, feelings. I still have so many difficulties, you know, but I can say that going into the body has helped, I mean, significantly shift my well-being, for lack of a better word. I feel as though the work is not to reach the stage where we don't feel all kinds of uncomfortable or painful emotions, but to reach the stage where we can feel everything again. Absolutely. And I feel like that's, I've learned to cry again. You know, it's not that I wasn't a tough guy, but I was so dis, like I said, so up here, I was just not in touch. And I went, unless I was drunk, then I could cry. I'd cry all the time. I wasn't a happy drunk. I was a, I would cry and write angry journal notes to God. And, you know, where are you? I hate you. And um, that would be the only time I would cry. If I was sober, I would rarely cry. But now like, it's not that I cry a lot, but I can cry if something comes up and I feel it. I'm connected with my body to the point where, oh man, I can physically cry. Like it's, it's weird to say that to someone who has never experienced it. Cause a lot of people like not to throw my fiance under the bus, but she'll admit she cries a lot. And that's great. I'm kind of jealous because she's like in touch, you know, and feels her feelings. So I, w- I wish I cried a little more, but anyways. <laughs> You do feel, um, for whatever it's worth, more, I don't know, integrated now or something. Energe- yes. Energetically, you feel more integrated than uh, when we first encountered each other. You know, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Jeff, because, you know, I really appreciate your work and hearing that. Like, it's nice to hear people kind of reinforce things that, because well, when you're going through it, you don't necessarily see it or, or feel it. Yeah, it's, well, it's in, if if it's real change, it happens in increments. So exactly, it's not always incredibly apparent to us, but it right. could be to other people. When you mention ART, you're talking about authentic relating stuff. No, it's uh, accelerated. Oh, what's the middle? Um, let me look it up real quick. I should know. I actually just started this a month ago, so that's why it's new to me. It's born out of EMDR. It's very similar. The therapist I'm seeing now was an EMDR therapist. And it just has like kind of an added element to it. And it is, the ART stands for Accelerated Resolution Therapy. Oh, nice. So if you were to sort of look ahead and imagine what as yet unresolved material that you hold 
could possibly trip you up and create more challenges going forward. Because I think sometimes it's helpful to sort of see the shadings of those. Yeah. Um, and we can't fully embody them yet because we're not quite there yet in our process. But can you? what can you see that might prevent you from reaching the next stages of integration? The only thing I could think of that would prevent me is if I return to like the old things that I was doing, which is suppressing or going back to the mind approach of being. I, I feel as though... Because you see those as linked to the addictive patterning. Yeah, exactly. Like I was saying earlier, my, my real... I can't say that there wasn't subtle levels of healing that started. And I'll be honest, it was The Power of Now was the first book I read like 20 years ago, whenever it came out, pre-Oprah, my professor recommended it. And that was the gateway book for me. Unfortunately, and I think we've had this conversation and I've had it with a lot of other people like, well, what's wrong with reading, you know, so-and-so's very popular book? Um, it, it could be an entryway. Yes, it could, but most people, that's all it is. And I know you've shared that... Just, don't call, it, just don't call it enlightenment. Yes, exactly. Just call it a first stage of awakening. Yes. And then I got no problem with Tole, but when he calls that book an enlightenment guide or whatever he calls right. it, that changes everything. Yeah, exactly. So the point is like, for me in that stage, and I, and I, and I know I'm not answering your question, which I'll get back to, but what I realized was I was just spiritualizing the ego. You know, I was just putting a different coding on it. And I'm not saying the ego is the enemy, like it's part of our being again. And that's what a lot of people do. That's what Trungpa Rinpoche calls spiritual materialism. You're just changing one identity for another and feeling like holier because you're doing these whatever. And, and I believed that. And it wasn't until I started doing, again, these body work exercises that I recognized that stuff has its place. And I have certainly benefited from it. Just like I look back at the years, and it's been a very long time, but where I did a lot of hallucinogenics when I was younger, I see how that truly did like kind of expand my mind and open me up to new ideas and other things that have helped me later on in life. I am a very open-minded person. But yeah, to, to go back to your question, I think that's it. Like As long as I keep doing this work, I, that's why I love EMDR. Talk therapy is great too, but EMDR... What it helped me recognize is like, it was almost like a web. So I would find a specific event, whether it was a big T or little T trauma, usually little T, but then they bring you back. So say you remember it as a teenager. Okay, when before that do you remember feeling it? And stuff that's like down there that is unconscious, like comes back like a flash and it's like, oh my God. And then it's like one of those spider webs where a whole bunch of things you can see interlinked and where this thing that happened maybe in your teens or early 20s or later, you think that's the cause, but you go back and you see, oh my God, there's all this unresolved material yeah. lying dormant in my body. And so as long as I'm continuing to explore that stuff, to me, like that's the big path. I still meditate. That's just overall good for the body. And I don't do it every day like I used to, but that's important to me because it also brings me into the body. I don't meditate to transcend. I meditate to be here. I do body scans. I do literal right. like mindful body meditations. And I feel like I feel where am I not feeling you know, comfortable? What's that about? I don't always get answers. But so anyways, yeah, that's, that's the only thing I could honestly in this moment see yeah. standing in my way is not continuing with what I'm doing. It feels like what you're saying is that, you know, moving more deeply in the direction of the world of feeling yes. is the thing that prevents you from falling into those patterns. And it makes sense yes. that if you're not in your body and not in the world of feeling, you might be more inclined to seek some kind of addictive high because you're not actually experiencing any enlivened sensations within the no. body, right? Empty, it's an emptiness. It's a void. So I want to feel. looking for a feeling, you yes. know, it just makes, so the more enlivened you are, the less like, you know, it's interesting is my, and maybe this is what you're saying too, you know, in grounded, I define spirituality as reality. So the most spiritual person, if we could quantify it, is the one who's holding the greatest number of threads of reality, which includes the humanist, the selfhood, the honoring of the ego, the feelings, all of this, and an expansive perspective, all of it happening, swirling in this enrealment, field of enrealment. But, you know, I think 
as my journey has progressed, I'm less inclined to even resonate with the word spirituality generally. I, I feel like my what my work is and continues to be is not about becoming a more spiritual person, but about becoming more deeply human. And that's really the same thing in a way. It is. And, and it's funny because, you know, you read my bio and the first thing I say is not a spiritual teacher because people call me that. And I was on a podcast recently and I was saying like, similar to you, that word, it's just that now has, and not now, but for a while it has such a stigma. And I like to use the word healing journey, you know, like we're all on these healing journeys and varying degrees. And that's, I kind of will implement that rather than spirituality or well-being, whatever the case may be. It's about reintegration. Exactly. So we talk about inclusivity as we move progressively towards inclusivity, racially and gender sense and all that. We need to also talk about the inclusivity of parts, which is kind of Richard Schwartz, who I recently interviewed, the um, IFS guy, internal family systems guy, is really just talking about parts and reintegrating. And I feel like that's really what we're talking about. We're all yeah. talking about that in, in the, the ones that are trying to come back down into the body itself, as opposed to the ones who are still trying to keep us out of our bodies. Because as we know, dissociation is a big business. And that's why the second book I wrote is where I really started to experience what I'm talking about to you now was titled Everything Mind, even though it's the word mind, it's everything. And I go at great lengths throughout that book to talk about you can have just as, for lack of a better word, holy of an experience at a Slayer concert as you can chanting Kirtan. And I say that from direct experience, you know, because I keep myself open and I do believe for you know, spirit, whatever you care to call it, that which gives life energy, whatever, everything really is interconnected. That's part of the Eastern philosophy that I do appreciate. Science says the same thing. It's all literally interconnected. And so if you're open to that, I can at least, and plenty of anybody can have these, you know, experiences of wholeness, of being in your body, of connection to other people, regardless of the setting. You don't have to go to churches and sanghas and yoga studios to experience this or sit down it can happen like I, that's what i love about your book the simple walking through the park parts and i notice this person and that person and i'm wondering about that homeless person with the smile and they seem content and at just everyday life it's not some big grand special thing that a lot of people make it out to be it's just it's the life that's it so, you know, then the idea of being, you know, a spiritual teacher, you know, I've never called myself a spiritual teacher. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know I'd probably make a lot more money if I did. And, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> you know, I'd be God-jectified and <laughs> charge, you know, 500 bucks an hour. And But, you know, I think the reason why it feels preposterous to me is because I define spirituality as reality, as opposed to somebody who's just teaching a very specific mastered realm of reality. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's teaching all of reality or who's at a stage in human development where they even could. And, you know, my experience of somatic psychotherapists is they were the closest thing I ever, closest I ever got to body-centered psychotherapy to being spiritual teachers, somatic experiencing people, core energetics people, bioenergetics people, because I felt like at least they invited people in the direction of the guts of their being. And right. only from the guts of their being, can you begin to even experience a degree of presence in all of this. Um, But, you know, I think if we just, it's fine to say you're a meditation teacher, it's fine to say you're whatever, but the spiritual teacher is a very dangerous, unhealthily egoic title that creates a lot of problems for a lot of people. I think it's time we just, here in this conversation, we just ban it altogether. My signature will be the first one on that. If anything, if I am forced to call myself anything, I say I am an experienced sharer. Because that's all I can do, you know, share my experience. I'm very transparent in talks and books. I don't have the answers. Nobody has the fucking answer. Well, you have have a few. I mean, you know, I think you're providing an invitation in the direction of humanness and wholeness. And, and, you know, Chris, I think your story is very, I'm very much about story. This bashing story, turning around story, it's very dangerous. Yeah. We really are. I mean, you know, we're not necessarily all that we frame ourselves to be within the story. There's something sure. more to that. But story is powerful. Story is what's rooted in the cells of our being. Story is what creates all of the uncomfortable and challenging patterns. Yeah. Story and going back into story, reframing, healing, and transforming it is what brings us back into alignment. So 
Totally agree. I celebrate your story. I think your story is fantastic. I really like listening to it. And I really like feeling resonance in terms of my own challenges and points of departure from elements of reality in the heart of your story. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And so I guess certainly could have worded that better. I think I try to express like in my books and my teachings is that I don't like when people tell you this is the way because I don't believe that. It, it might be for that person or someone else, but I make it very clear that for me, I have a very integral like practice I use, You know, not to take from Ken Wilber's term, but there's a lot of things that work for me that I know won't work for others. And I respect that. I respect each individual is their own person. And I know that not everything that's worked for me will work for them. And so that's why I make that very clear. And so when I say I don't have the answers, it's more like, all I can share with you is my story, the things that have helped, the things I found that haven't helped, but that doesn't mean they will or will not help you. You know, like try it on, find out for yourself. And you're the only one who can know for sure because you're the only one in your skin. So. Absolutely. Thank you for um, sharing your powerful offering with us today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate anything else come to mind. It's been an hour already. Like that's yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, wow, that's great. Like that's why I love talking to you. When I had you on the podcast recently, it's like we were saying I could have we could have talked for four hours um, easily. But no, I just think you know everything we've talked about. And and the last thing I will say is just you know to reiterate that just because I have books written and I speak at these conferences at times and whatever, like I am a human being. Like it says in my bio that is exceptionally flawed. And I do my best each day. I still, as I said earlier, fall into self-negating and, you know, thoughts. And I've gotten a lot better at like pulling myself out of that thanks to certain practices and body awareness. But the last thing I guess I would say is please don't put anyone on a pedestal. Like I don't even like standing on stages when I talk. I understand it's necessary for certain things, but if I do a breakout session or a workshop, like I'm the person that does the circle. When I work with the teens that I work with, I sit on the floor with them and I make it very clear that this is not me talking to you. This is us spending time together because I am no different than you. Like, so the spiritual celebrity thing, like all of that, I mean, but that's, yeah, that's like the last, and just be you, you know, like if it works for you, be you, my fiance and I often joke if somebody walked into our apartment that had read some of my books and, you know, thought of me as some sort of spiritual figure teacher, they'd be like, what is going on? Cause as I look around now, it's either a ton of music equipment, horror posters, like rare posters. I collect horror toys. I love horror movies. Like my bookshelves, sure. They have some spiritual books, but I have like, you know, all sorts of like weird stuff that has nothing to do with spirituality because this is stuff I love and I enjoy. And it doesn't make me feel any less spiritual or human or embodied. It's stuff I like. So just whatever works for you. Like, nice. And if it, it doesn't resonate, cool, let it go. But people change and taste change. But do you? So we'll, we'll close it on our shared mantra of be real now. I love that. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks, buddy. See you again. Yeah. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. 